welcome to another episode of Practically Intelligent. This episode, Sanan and I have a very special guest on Giada Pastilli, principal ethicist at Hugging Face, based out of France. Giada leads a lot of uh, the both philosophical work and framework uh, that Hugging Face uses to think about ethics uh, within their models. We talk about the processes she's instilled, how bias gets uh, in, inducted into LLMs uh, in ways that we don't think about, and what new companies should be doing to as they with their models as they think about uh, taking an ethical approach. Yeah, this is a, a super fun conversation that we had with Jada. Right? I mean, we 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 covered so many aspects of. To your point, philosophy and ethics and fairness and bias. Yeah, we touched on all of that. Uh, we also touched on team management. How, how do you think about building teams around this kind of stuff? And how do you get them on board with a way of thinking, right? Because when we're using LLMs, it's not just, okay, how do you make it work in Python? But it's also, how do you make this work as intended for our users. And what does that mean? How do you quantify that? How do you quali qualitatively define that? And I think we get into a lot of interesting uh, conversations around that. And frankly, I wish this could have gone on for hours, but, um, but for now, let's, let's, let's jump right in, shall we? Today, we have with us Giada Pastili, the Principal Ethicist at Hugging Face and a PhD candidate of philosophy at Sorbonne University. Thank you so much for being here. I know you're in, in Paris right now, so it's evening for you. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and our wonderful audience today, Giada. No, thank you. It's great to be here with you. Awesome. So I think we can go ahead and kick things off with uh, some some advice. I think everyone who listens to our show, they're, they're ready to, to hear our, all, all three of our advices on working with LLMs and building with LLMs. And you have a lot of experience, uh, not just with your PhD, uh, but you also have a lot of experience working hands-on applications with LLM, notably big science, where you were helping uh, develop Bloom, the, the very large uh, LLM, you know, half a billion parameter um, LLM that some people may or may not be familiar with. So I want to start off with a bit of a broad question, but I, I, I'm curious if you can tell us and our, our listeners, what were some of the key takeaways from uh, building and, and training uh, LLMs with, well, not just big science in particular, but just training and, and working with LLMs in general, particularly around fairness and ethics. Uh, obviously, we want to focus most of our conversation there. So what were some of the biggest takeaways from your time with all that hands-on training and application building? Yeah, I think maybe I should start by saying that I do not have like a technical background. So of course I was there when Boom has been trained, but don't start asking me asking me like really technical questions because I might <laughs> not know the answer. I know the concept, but well, I I wasn't there for the actual training. But um I would say that something I was super um, interesting, especially from maybe coming from a humanities point of view, is the fact that we wanted to show and to prove that it was possible to do this kind of large language models and especially training them and collecting the data that was needed in a different way. And I would say there were maybe two main points. So the first one was to do it multilingual because it was kind of the first one to be, since it's always and everything 
around ML, AI, but maybe also around computer science in general. It's pretty uh, English dominated. So we wanted to show that it was possible to also gather uh, data. So having a multilingual data set and showing that it could, we could do it like in a responsible way. So we had a really strong process based on data governance, which was uh, coordinated by one of my colleagues, Yasin Yarnit. And so that was, um, I guess, the first point. And then the second one, we wanted to prove that it was also possible to do it in a collective way. So everything was, it was an open science uh, workshop, right? So we really wanted to be as transparent as possible and as open as possible. And so that translated in having recorded meetings and everything was available for anyone who wanted to join us. So that's also why I joined actually. I didn't have like someone saying to me, hey, you should come or stuff like that. Like I saw it in a newspaper in France because he has, Bloom has been trained in France, like actually near Paris, near where I live. And so since it was super intriguing, I was like, maybe there could be a really first good experience to actually know how this work and how can people work around architecture, data collection and, and training. And so I think that it was something super valuable, especially for people coming from different fields and backgrounds, but also interested in working in AI in general. So it was super welcoming. So it was super, yeah, extremely interesting to see that even people coming from different backgrounds and fields, we all had uh, like different opinions and points of view and we were all listened. So I think that was maybe one of the most successful stories that I would like to, uh, to, to tell everybody that it was possible doing something in the open, especially knowing at, at the time and even now, maybe now we have more interesting open source LLMs, but especially at the time, 2021, we only knew like GPT-3 and large language models that were really like really close. So we really want to, to prove that it was possible to do it in the open and collect in a really transparent way. And so concerning my work there, um, I was a co-chair of the legal and ethical uh, scholarship. So we mainly worked on the responsible AI license that was drafted before Big Science that existed before, but it was adopted by Big Science and adapted, of course. And then I also coordinated the drafting of the ethical charter of the project. So uh, maybe we can talk about it a bit later, but uh, one of the interesting points to note there that it was interesting to see how everything was coordinated and how each group, because Big Science, so we were over a thousand researchers, but we all had specific working groups. So because we had different like expertise, and so each working group, once again, everything was recorded and transparent. We have, were taking notes, but um, we focused on a really specific matter. So you had also like the working group specific, like specifically looking to bias, the working group specifically uh, helping with collecting the multilingual data and the architecture about training and blah, blah, blah. So we, we were all coordinated in that way. And uh, so, yeah, I was part of the, that specific group, but we were also, of course, in touch with other uh, relevant working groups. Amazing. And actually, I, I think we can kind of dig a little bit deeper on that, because when you get to such a, a big organization like Hugging Face and Big Science and anyone else out there who is an ML engineer at a, at a larger company, structure becomes one of the principal ways that people um, can move forward scalably 
and safely, ethically, uh, and, and with a mind for fairness and bias. So c- can you actually touch on a little bit of how, how did that structure come about? Was there, was that the initial inception when you were, were starting? Was that, was the idea to break into these groups or did you try something before that and it wasn't working and then you had to evolve into it? What, what was that process like? How, how did you know that this was the organizational structure that seemed to be producing the best results? So to be fair, I wasn't there at the very beginning. So I can say if we tried something else and then it didn't work and then we, we had to like switch to something else. But um, actually there were some uh, people from Hugging Face also working like full time on the Big Sense project and helping especially with maybe really trivial, but it, it, like fundamental tools like, such as, I don't know, Slack, for communication or uh, I don't know, for the workplace, uh, all the tools that are related to, you know, collective work, like, I don't know, a Google Doc or stuff like that. So everything was provided. That was the interesting and so maybe useful, useful thing about it. And uh, I remember that when I joined, it was quite easy, actually. We started that we weren't that many, I think, when I joined. So it was uh, maybe three, four months after it started, you only had like this really big Google Doc where you could just put your name. And as soon as the organize, like the main organizer at the time, Susanna, who used to work at, at Hugging Face before. And so she was in charge, of course, of helping with the organization and she was super valuable. And uh, once like your name got acknowledged and then you could join the specific working group. And so each working group had like a Slack channel where we were um, like discussing. And of course we also had weekly or bi-weekly meetings. And so it was pretty straightforward actually. You just joined the conversation. Of course, there are some limitations to having this kind of organization because if like a really big discussion had already got started, then it meant that you have to catch up on everything. So you have to kind of, of course, when you jump in a new meeting and people already know each other and they're already discussing something pretty important, then it's up to you to kind of try to catch up with everything. So uh, I would say like for me personally, it was kind of overwhelming at the beginning, especially knowing that lots of things I didn't really understand them well because it was I used to already work like on chatbots and everything AI related but it was really the first time that I was witnessing with my own eyes um, like a new uh, large language model being built and being trained so uh, I had to also learn new stuff and new you know vocabulary and everything that was related to that so I would say that it was, of course, pretty successful in terms of organization, but we also learned some of the lessons to maybe do better in the future because uh, like something that might seem um, maybe trivial, but it was kind of important and is how to be, for instance, inclusive with different time zones. Because of course, if you have people coming from all over the world and you're having like weekly meetings, then it means that you kind of have to do the effort to try uh, to try to find like a comfortable time zone for everyone to be able to join the meeting. And that was, of course, when you have like the States, Europe, and I don't know, Australia or Singapore, then it becomes quite like an impossible challenge. So uh, there are some things that maybe you could have done better and be more inclusive in terms of like who can attend or not attend or stuff like that. But yeah, that's pretty much how we did it. 
And actually, we also presented a paper uh, in, uh, in a, a track of NeurIPS last year talking about this, of the social construction of big science, because of course, it was quite an effort. I wasn't lucky enough maybe to be there at the very beginning, but I know that like people put a lot of effort on that because of course, managing over a thousand people it's not always easy and once again also we're a thousand but it's always hard to find like to make everyone participate and join at the same level so uh, once again because maybe we were also um distant like physically distant and i think that's also what actually covid allowed us to do because thinking about having those kind of weekly meetings just in video calls Maybe before COVID, it was even imaginable. So you have pros and cons and to balance, of course, mm -hmm. but I think it was a really teachable moment. Got it. That's, that's really helpful to understand how you all worked at Big Science. One thing that you mentioned that was unique about Big Science was this incredible interdisciplinary effort with over a thousand collaborators, really big, and you all had data governance, you know, at, as a, as a really important part of it, right? As opposed to, you know, GPT just training on common crawl. So can you talk to us a little bit about when you were starting that project, how you all decompose the inherent kind of nature of fairness and responsibility? Um, because you, in some ways, you know, these are kind of very vague concepts to folks and to even non-AI practitioners or people in AI. It, it doesn't really make sense, but the underlying tenet of it is what you all did, which is in data governance and these data collection mechanism. So can you talk to us about how you operationalize that and how you even thought about fairness, um, instilling fairness into your model? Um, what was it like to even just approach that? It seems such like such a kind of vague concept. So yeah, no, that's completely actually fair. It's not a pun. But it's a fair question. Um, I think so if we take a step back, like uh, with respect to everything you asked, I think it's also important to talk on how we imagined uh, all documents that we were that were supposed to kind of frame uh, the project as well. And so uh, when we started, like myself, with all the people, of course, that were composing my working group, when we started thinking about what are the values actually of the project, you know, like what do we want to put forward? What do we want to share with all other MLP practitioners and ML practitioner practitioners and what do we want to um what like what are our goals what are the criteria that are going to be settled for our project and so from there I remember doing like a lot of study of all the documents that already existed within big science internal documents once again everything was uh, really accessible from anyone and so like the first statements the first call where they answer to get the gpus from the paris supercomputer gen z and so everything was kind of already um implicit over there like the fact that they wanted to be multilingual that they wanted to be inclusive everything was already in the shadow i would say and so the work that i tried to do when i drafted at first the ethical charter was really to kind of um, make explicit those internal values that i call uh, like intrinsic values and to build a framework that could at least be the basis you know to other documents then to develop and then where they, that's exactly where like other documents concerning data governance came out 
So I can't talk really into details on how that started once again, because I wasn't there at the very beginning, but I was led with by like one of my colleagues that I mentioned and then other mm -hmm. people external also to Hugging Face and other researchers. And so they had also their own kind of ethical principles that they wanted to follow. And every time that we, as you said, sometimes it can be pretty vague. And everything that I always say also to people that want to draft like some ethical guidelines or something to guide their work in the project, it's at first to ask themselves question about what do you want, what, like, what do you want to go? What do you want to showcase? And what are going to be really the criteria of your project? Like, do you want, if we're talking about fairness, we should start from definitions. And so uh, if we are defining like contextually what fairness means in your same project, then you're going somewhere. And so as far as I remember, especially concerning data governance, uh, one of the main core values was consent. And so they were like, as I said, since it was multilingual, they wanted to um, gather as much as data as possible. But from the people that were, that was first their native language and second of all, that it was of course consensual. And so that's where they started like larger and broader collaborations for, with other organizations. And so thanks to those other organizations, like I remember Masakane for uh, African languages, that's where they started with really collaboration. That's when also they started to, to work on it. And so this all to say that when you build step-by-step step, like your ethical framework and you come from already discussions and kind of implicit values that already stay in there, like um, I would say in the shadow of your own project, then from there and started to make them contextual and def defined concerning your own project, then you can make small progress, but it doesn't need to be what I call, and I'm not the only one to say that like ethics shopping, where you just go and grab, you know, kind of principles or values that seem pretty, but they don't really stick to your project or you, since you never define them and you never prove like what you're saying, because, you know, values only exist when you prove them. Like I say fairness, but I can prove to you that I've been fair. So I'll stop here. I can talk about this for a really long time, but I, ho I hope that answered the question. It absolutely answered the question. And we want you to talk about this for a long time. And, 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 <laughs> and specifically, I think it, it, this is a really cool time to transition into talking about how bias and, and general biases can get encoded into a model what's an LLM in obvious and not so obvious way. So, so you, you're, you're talking right now about the idea of incorporating values in, into the model and um, talking about a paper that you worked on in 2022 um, titled the, the Ghost in the Machine Has an American Accent, which is, a, first of all, a very well-named paper, I have to say. Um, you talk a lot about, and you and your colleagues talk a lot about how there can be a, a conflict in bias between an input and a response from an LLM. And in particular, you more or less break it down into there are values and cultural values out there on planet Earth, and they are sometimes conflicting, but oftentimes they are all um, um, in conjunction, working in conjunction with each other, but they're all valid. And then you, you talk about how those values get translated onto the internet, because obviously the internet is not a perfect encapsulation of the world's values. And then from there, you say, how do we go from the internet's data and representation of values into the models, interpretation, and, and let's face it, regurgitation of, uh, of specific cultural values. So 
it's a very complicated three-step process going from the values of planet Earth to the values of the internet to the values of a model. But in, in every step of that way, you make several points about how you lose and, and kind of gloss over many uh, of the values represented. I'll, I'll point out one example where in, in one of the tables in, in, the, in the paper, it talks about how the second most uh, uh, seen language in GPT-3's training data is French uh, at, a, at a staggering 1.8% uh, representation. It is number, number two is French, but, and no offense, Jonah, French is not even in the top five spoken languages in the world. So how does that happen? So how, how, how do we see those discrepancies in, in um, distributions of, I mean, languages is just one aspect of it, but can, can you talk us a little bit through how we see that progression in training data? Well, that's a lot to unpack there. Uh, <laughs> where to start? First, I would say like big shout out to my co-author who found the, um, the title and it was actually a funny story because she's Australian and she told us that once she was like in exchange somewhere and they were like her, an American person, and I remember someone whose language wasn't like English as first language, and the American person said, oh, that's funny, I'm the only person who doesn't have an accent, and they all looked at that and said, of course you have an accent, you have an American accent, <laughs> and so I thought it was like, it was really fun, like anecdote, and it really stick to the, to the paper and what we wanted to say, but besides that funny story, and shout out to Beck. Um, so where to start? I think it's important also to kind of, um, we also talked about it in our newsletter that had been faced about ethics uh, on our ethics in society, like the latest um, newsletter, where we tried to also say that there's, um, there's a link, there's a correlation between values and bias. And especially knowing that since bias is such a broad term, I would say like we all, we're all biased, like we know that. I'm not a cognitive scientist, but I also come from social science and humanity, so I know that it's not something that we can unbias, you know. So starting from that statement, what do we do? First of all, what kind of values do we want represented? Or what kind of bias, since like there really there's a correlation there. And so what we wanted to look with my co-authors in the ghost in the machine is to kind of we actually started kind of playing with GPT-3 because we thought that uh, indeed, it was pretty clear that it was performing performing very well in English, and it wasn't performing pretty bad in other languages. Also, one of the stories about that paper, we had um, um, a Lithuanian co-author, and when she tried to uh, prompt something in Lithuanian, actually the model replied in, in Lithuanian, but it was just gibberish. Like she said, that sentence doesn't even make sense. Of course, that was expected. But we could see like English, French, actually no offense because I live in France, but I'm not French, I'm Italian, so no offense. <laughs> but I really agree. And I think that all comes really from the internet, right? Like the internet, it's pretty much dominated by the English language. And then you have also other languages. But if we look at the representation of it, of the language, then it's pretty straightforward. And so from there, if we started by scrapping everything and as I always say, having this kind of a priori where we think that the internet is actually the representation of the humankind, then we're really mistaken. Because once and first of all, 
of course, not all the knowledge is on the internet. Like I also work on very technological tools and stuff, even when doing philosophy, but I always stick to books, you know, they're always around me. So, uh, like saying that all the knowledge of the you of humankind is on the internet, that's a really false statement. And also about representation where we, we were talking about fairness. I think one of the definitions of fairness is also representation. And so if you want, I think the, the, um, the main question, the main research question where we were coming from, especially about that paper is if you want to make like a language model that it's supposed to be, um, used by the whole world then what kind of what kind of values are you implicitly sharing with those users and then those humans and i think that's still like a really open question i think we just wanted to start like we also stayed in the paper we know that we had lots of limits actually that we didn't go through a really quantitative, you know, methodology, but it was so striking that we were like, we really need to think and to say, to start saying something about it. And as you also mentioned, at least me as a philosopher, I think one of the most interesting things about how values are represented and how values are embedded in language is to really look at what it's called inconsistency. It's when like you have conflicting values. And especially if you start like asking questions that could be not really objective, like when you can have some different like responses given a single language, like a single question, especially, I don't know if you're th thinking or talking about something that's pretty sensitive, then who's got to decide like what kind of answer we should get from an LLM. And so, I think that it was, especially at the time that we were, I think we wrote the paper, it was 2021 and then it came out in 2022. But um, I'm really hopeful about the fact that now people and also researchers, both in the industry and academia are starting to address this problem. I know that from that time and that point, we made huge progress. And so it's, uh, it's amazing to see that. But I think there are still lots of unanswered questions like one of the questions that we also ask in our newsletter hacking face is like okay but if society is biased and we live in what like especially in my research i think and talk a lot about value pluralism for instance it's the fact that as you were saying sinan that we all come how we humans with different sets of values and especially that's why i was insisting on definitions like fairness could mean something for me italian living in france and then for you and then for Xi, and for everybody else so starting from there how do you approach the problem like because still language is still going to embed values so, so what kind of values are we going to represent and who got to decide and what about different languages? And I think that was the most interesting part about our research there and actually still doing research about that nowadays at Hugging Face is how different languages can embed different values and how does all work? And especially what kind of society then do you want to, to, to represent? And if we agree then for instance, I don't know, like our current and I don't know, maybe Western society has a, has a really a real big problem with sexism, let's say, then that's the society as it is today. But what should we represent? Should we represent the society that we wish we had like tomorrow or in 10 years or in five years? And then who, once again, who gets to decide what kind of society? 
because like in social science we always say that like truth doesn't really exist it's more like a broader concept of different truths that are all coexist all together so what kind of truth are you going to share with your language model yeah what i thought was really interesting about your paper and, and we'll link to it Jada, is it's not just the multilingual focus it shows up in really interesting ways uh for example like views on firearms like if you ask you go into these cases actually of or like secularism in specific countries and it shows up in completely different ways where someone from that country, like to your point on the Lithuanian example, be like, that is not reflective. And if this is becoming not just an encyclopedia for the internet, but these agents are making decisions on behalf of humans, as we're already seeing for companies, et cetera, it leads to some really interesting societal questions, right? Of uh, how do we measure this bias? How do we mitigate it? You know, one thing that I think that has been heavily focused on is just training more, you know, just inputting more training data. So inputting more French training data, Lithuanian training data. But I'm curious if there are other methods that uh, you're either encouraged or discouraged because you don't see them that we, you know, people that are training these large language and high parameter count models should be incorporating. You talk about, you know, the ethical charter at big science. I don't think I've ever heard of a company or, you know, even an open source kind of, uh, you know, player. I mean, it's incredible that Hugging Face obviously has you and, and a team of ethicists, but I'm not sure of, you know, other players really incorporating eth ethics as a first-class citizen into these. So our, outside of just training data and training more, what can, what, what should researchers and engineers be, be doing and thinking about outside of just volumes of hyper-specific training data? How can we, uh, what tools or levers are at their, convenience to measure and mitigate bias? You're asking the $1 million question, I think, and I'm, sure yeah. that I'm not sure I have the answer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I have some, I have some opinions. So I think, like, first of all, I would start by trying to figure out where does, like, those, where do those biases come from, or values, or embedded values, or implicit values, whatever we want to call them. Like, for instance, you mentioned, like, the example that we gave in The Ghost in a Machine, and what was interesting about the kind of uh, methodology that we adopted is that we kind of tricked the model on just summarizing some text that we were given, so it was kind of forced to give us a really simple representation or a description of the, the input that we gave. And I think that was um, kind of um, like, it, that spoke a lot about what was inside that, on that model, like at the time that now it's like drastic times, I would say of LLMs. But um, I think I would start by asking the question of where are they coming from? Because as you said, like, I'm not sure that training more and training more data, more diverse data, it's going to solve the question. Because once again, you also have like this really known problem in value theory about inconsistency. So what's going to happen if you put like lots of English, uh, I don't know, data, and then lots of French data, knowing that like, for instance, like the example that we gave in the Gaussian machine, it was, it was uh, about secularism, because I know that uh, in the US and in France, it's kind of the opposite interpretation of that value. And so how are you going to like, how are you going to solve this kind of opposition? You know, what's the what's the language model supposed to tell you? Like, is it supposed to tell you like the American uh, rep representation or the French interpretation more than representation? But 
you see what I mean? And I think what's super interesting is to kind of figure out also if is it is it really coming just from uh, the data or is it also coming and that's what I'm kind of interested in at the moment. Is it also coming from the inputs? Mm -hmm. Like we you, we users are also uh, humans with values and sets of values and lots of inconsistency as well. Of course, I'm not saying that we're perfect, but if I really ask you a question that it's really oriented, you know, like what, what the model is going to, what the model is going to reply. It's just an open question. And so I think there are really different, um, maybe points of view that you could get, but yeah. I don't have the answer. Yeah. One thing that's a nuance that is really important that I didn't understand until diving into this, reading your research and others is that more representative training data does not fix the problem because you get a lot of inconsistencies. So maybe could you could you actually explain that with an analogy and example? I think that's super important for people because I think what there's this assumption where well, we're headed this world where, and you know, Hugging Face is helping enable this, where there's just going to be a ton of different models. And so people are like, well, the training data is going to get good and people will kind of check the box on basic compliance stuff, but the values inconsistency is very, very important. So could you explain why more training data doesn't, uh, you know, necessarily mitigate bias through maybe some examples in your paper or, uh, you know, explain that to us. Yeah. So maybe we could use like the same example that I also make about, uh, the French, like an American of American inter like interpretation of secularism. So because of history, because of, uh, all the values that already existed here in France and because of the society also, this has been built and blah, 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 blah. Uh, so secularism in France means that no religious signs are allowed in the public space. And that's what, why, why I call it a value. It's because like, it's one of the core values of France. Like it means that, I don't know if you got the news like abroad the ocean, but, uh, there are really, um, also mm, strong discussions about the hijab on schools and how to like, it's a really complicated, um, I wouldn't say maybe complicated, but it's a really important thing here in France to stick with that interpretation, at least for now. Of course, there are still debates. Not everybody agrees on that, but that's the French way of interpreting secularism, at least like in their laws and everything. And so when you go, and I know this because I also studied it like in a French university where we had a one year course about it because it was so complicated. And I remember it was also kind of complicated to understand for my co-authors because they didn't know how important was secularism here in France. But then if you go to the US, secularism means freedom of speech and freedom of religion interpreted as being like all religious signs are allowed. And so the inconsistency that you see there, it's there exactly at the opposite. Like freedom is interpreted in, in the US as being everybody's allowed. Like everybody's allowed also to wear an hijab in school. And while in France, freedom is, especially freedom of religion is like, if you don't want to offend me in the public space, you shouldn't display any religious, religious symbol and, or sign. And so they're really at the opposite of their interpretation. And so when I asked actually GPT-3, uh, what's like, what was the summary of the, um, I think I prompted with a really like official uh, French government text. It replied that 
um, France was Islamophobic. <laughs> I mean, that's also another, that's kind of the tension that you got, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. And then I think the, I, 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 as many of our listeners hopefully know by now, I, I come from a theoretical math background. And, and, and for me, this actually rings a really mathematical definition is like pounding in my head. My algebra teachers are, are, are speaking to me for all the way from Johns Hopkins. And, and to me, this is nothing more than an ill-defined map, right? And, and ill-defined in its technical sense, meaning whenever we've done algebra, even in middle school and high school, we always do the, the function test. Is this thing a function, right? The vertical line test. Um, but there's also the horizontal line test which is basically saying, does one data point potentially map to two or more things, right? Um, so when we talk about a well-defined map, having one uh, in, you know, in, 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 uh, in an XY plane, one X coordinate should not result in, in two different Y coordinates, right? That's our, that's our vertical line test. That's testing of something as a function. This is actually a really similar application in LOMs, right? Because if we type in or prompt, the same thing twice, technically there could be two cultural answers, right, to the same question. And the fact that that exists, it means that this is not a well-defined function, right? If we ask the same thing, there's more context that is hidden, right? The context that is hidden is, well, what kind of cultural, um, what cultures in your society are you coming from? And, and how could the LLM possibly know that? Um, and, 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 and should it know that? Is, is that something that it even should be aware of is, is frankly a question on the table. Now, to, to kind of wrap this into a question for you and also kind of uh, coming back to the idea of the Hugging Face newsletter, because I think that's also something that our, our listeners should be in, in, in tune with. You recently tweeted uh, about a, one, of, one of Hugging Face's newsletters, which was actually co-written with Nathan Lambert, who will also um, be a guest on our show. Um, in, a, in, a, in a future episode, uh, and you talk specifically about text-to-image models. In, in, in text-to-image models, right, where like stable diffusion or Dolly from OpenAI, you type in prompt, you get back an image. And you throw together, and pretty visually, stark differences in asking an American-trained LLM versus a Chinese-trained LLM with the same prompt. I think it was a house in Beijing. Yes. And, and, and the different images that came back were frankly stark, right? The, the, the English LLM, I think it was Stable Diffusion that you used. Stable Diffusion returns an image that is to a Western society, looks pretty quote unquote Asian, right? There's very typical, what, what, what Western societies would call typical Asian architecture. Whereas the Chinese trained um, uh, model, when given the same prompt, returns a pretty modern apartment building, right? A, a building that you would actually probably find in Beijing. If you go to Beijing and just look where people live. And I think it's a really, obviously, because when we deal with images, it's pretty easy to show someone <laughs> the differences between something. But I, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about as the world is looking in the near future towards multimodality, right? GPT-4 has been promising multimodality from the very beginning. I, I'm sure we'll see it any day now, uh, but other models are already out there, open source and closed source, who can take in images, output images, along with text. As the world moves towards multimodality in their LLM architectures, 
what are what are some of even the more compounded biases and value um, conflicts that we might be seeing, given that we're we're frankly not perfectly addressing all these issues in pure text to text models? Yeah, I guess I think the same reasoning applies also to multimodal models. I would say that it's just amplifies and multiply, you know, the kind of bias that you could find. Because the questions that we were asking, especially in that specific newsletter, was what one of the questions we're really trying to to ask it, what kind of society do you want represented if it's not the one that we're living at right now? And from which country, from which culture, but also where do the bias are coming, especially when you're like, like for instance, a text to image model, do the biases or values are coming from the text? Are they coming from the images? What, how, how do we detect them? Like, how do we just, you know, kind of understand, um, I would say, um, how do you try to understand where they're coming from? You know, like, is it because it has lots of data? Is it because it has lots of images? And it's quite striking, you know, when you talk, when you also said about the houses, well, I actually did it with like, it was Sasha who uh, was coordinated that specific, Sasha Lucioni, my colleague, who was specific coordinated that newsletter. She worked on a really interesting um, tool called Stable Bias that I really invite all of you to test because, um, I think what's really interesting when dealing with bias as well, uh, comp comparative analysis is always quite striking. And for instance, she tried to, you know, having two different models, it was DALI and stable diffusion. And every time you had like an image, it was specifically about uh, like uh, professional uh, professionals and then adjectives and stuff like that. You could really see the differences between the two. And so if we want to come back about the cultures and how it's represented, I think that it's still an open question where those biases are coming from, because we could also say like, okay, you gather lots of different data, but then what kind of, um, as you said, like what kind of, I don't know, maybe um, final interpretation is the model going to give? Is it just going to multiply and to add everything that kind of learn, or is it going to give up, give like a new answer? What, what's going to what's going to answer? And I think that's still an open question. But uh, once again, I stress the fact that doing a comparative analysis that kind of help at least understand and explore those biases and then how to engage with them and how to address them. I think those are still really open questions. And that why, the fact that why and also stress value pluralism and maybe we didn't meant to, we didn't define it, but uh, it's, the value, like it's something that already exists in value theory saying that you don't have like a hierarchy of full values saying like inclusivity is more important than fairness or stuff like that or transparency but everything is agnostic to definitions and agnostic to context and uh, specific cultures and the fact that acknowledging that we're all different and we all have different interpretations that that kind of should help but once again like how to do it technically, I don't know. That's why we need the help. I think I always say that it really takes a village to think about those stuff. But uh, getting back to multimodal models, I think that it's just kind of amplifying and multiplying the kind of bias that we could get. And once again, when we talk about bias or values, it's not something negative. 
per se, but it's how they're going to be used, how they're going to be treated, and especially what are they going to represent. Like, for instance, we tried the house, but it could be something else. We could be like a wedding. And especially if we want to apply those models and pretend they're universal, then you're still, you know, kind of sharing yeah. all your then hidden values with all, all over, like well, with all over the world. It's a it's a perfect uh, you know segue to what will be our you know like next episode because there's not a lot of great uh, technical best practices on how to measure that right. So a lot of actually there's a lot of great work by I think Margaret uh, and a lot of your your co-authors on your paper latest paper um, that talk about you should have evaluation right and you you write this moral exercise of this charter and then in that effort how do you actually evaluate tokens and output and make sure the same way you get summary stats on model accuracy or, uh, you know, variation, et cetera, how do you actually measure different biases and what is most important to you? And I think that's not clear. Maybe one final question, because I think we've talked a lot about how bias gets encoded, but um, maybe about the tools um, for people, largely the umbrellas these tools will fall into. One thing we talked to, you talk about in your latest paper is this moral and ethical charter people should be taking. Another thing you talk about is technical and regulatory compliance. Those are obvious. I think people should both be compliant and then off, obviously, you know, have ethics in mind on the training model. One thing that you talk about that I think is less discussed is model licensing as an ethical tool. And could you maybe just illuminate why that's important? I, I haven't heard that mentioned as an ethical tool or in, in a lot of uh, engineers toolbox or uh, so I just love to hear you talk about uh, why you thought that was important. So yeah, I think you're mentioning Stronger Together, long, long, long title, uh, presented in fact. And so um, what's interesting is it's, I don't really think per se that it's an ethical tool, but it could be a legal tool in a more broader governance framework. And so what we try to present in that specific paper is that first of all, of course, interdisciplinarity is fundamental because once again, also to address your questions, I'm sure that if I had like Megan just next to me, we could maybe balance and complete each other. No, but jokes aside, so we were like uh, a lawyer, uh, a philosopher, and then Megan Yassine, so my colleagues coming more from the computer science part of it. And we were trying to present an analysis framework saying that, of course, those tools already exist. And we're not reinventing the wheel when we say that licensing, for instance, is important or ethical frameworks or technical documentation. What we wanted to try to prove is that they're really stronger together once again, if we combine them with each other and if they're informed with the values that are being established like in an ethical charter, then there's this kind there, there there are synergies that exist and since they also interact with each other then it becomes more operationalizable i would say even if i don't know if i like that word because it can also sound kind of vague but for instance you have an ethical charter where you set your own values and then those same values then could be in, like uh written and drafted also in, in an ethic uh, in um 
in a license, like in, an, in, a, in a user license. For instance, the license that we talk about the paper, it's the RILE license, so Responsible AI license. And what's interesting about that specific one is that they have uh, an annex that it's called just use restrictions and so those same use restrictions are informed in the like in the example that we gave we gave the example of big science because all of us worked on that too and so you can mm -hmm. see that those same use restrictions are informed also by the ethical charter for instance we talk about reproducibility in the ethical charter and so it kind of becomes evident in the user license because it's an open license but it, because it's open and everything is open access, it doesn't mean that you can do also malicious stuff. And so that's when those use restrictions come to play. And so this is why it kind of becomes part of this bigger um, framework, like analysis framework. And then, of course, in if you want to go into tech specifications, then it also becomes interesting to, to mention, of course, like we make the case for model cards, but extensive technical documentation then becomes essential when you want to try to, for instance, we made the example, like we talked about reproducibility, then if you want to reproduce like a model or those examples, then you need those technical specifications to get the hardware and blah, 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 and to know all the details. Got it. That's that's super helpful. So using licensing to, you know, basically make sure user behavior is is compliant with your initial ethical charter. I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, I think that's all the questions we had. Jada, is there anything else you'd like to impart on us? I think we covered pretty much everything we want to say. I think Sinan wants to say something. <laughs> no, I just I I, I was. Oh, no. <laughs> you have so much practical and theoretical experience in, in just thinking about and working with and, and literally just trying, kinesthetically trying LLMs um, and, and testing them on their hidden and biases. So I guess, what is the, is there something that our listeners can, can really concretely walk away with and say, what, what would be your kind of wrapped up a couple sentences advice for, for thinking about dealing with, and not necessarily training LMs, but even just using LMs. What would be your, your, your final, you know, if you're, there's, there's anything to walk away with, walk away with this, what would you tell our listeners? Um, that's a great question. I would say that maybe don't make assumptions about your users, because everything that sometimes I encounter is like, uh, we were just uh, laughing about it with Sasha just today, like good intentions are not enough. Like saying that you have the perfect tool and nobody's going to use it in a bad way that's not like humans are unpredictable. So you should maybe listen to your fellows and friends, social scientists, and coming from the humanity, humanities remember that unfortunately in the world is like society isn't perfect. Humans are not perfect, but it's the tools that need to be adapted to those humans and not vice versa, vice versa. And I also think that, yeah, assuming that we want to represent everyone and everything in the world, I think that's a really big task and I'm still not sure how to do it. So maybe we should listen more to those same users. Like when I, in my previous company, I used to do lots of user research and I loved it because I discovered so much. Like I discovered some new uses and of course people also want to do bad stuff with it. So instead of just trying to, you know, seeking the limits, maybe also give the good example on how to have like a good use of your ML tools. That would be amazing. Awesome. Well, Gianna Pastili, 
principal ethicist at Hugging Face, a PhD candidate at, at Sorbonne University. Thank you so much for being on the show with us. We will have links to all of the, the work that we cited uh, in, in, our, in our show notes. Uh, but again, thanks so much for being here and for taking the time to talk with, with us. No, thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thank you.